0: real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Welcome to another episode
1: of FNF Unplugged. Today, we have Nathan Britch with Neighborhood Home Loans. Nathan, I always like to start the podcast with finding out how you got to where you are right now, uh, especially since that word compliance is in your title and some people can be a little scared of
2: you. That is unfortunately something that happens in the, in the mortgage business. So hi, uh, Nathan Bridge. I'm the compliance guy over at Neighborhood Loans. Nobody gets into this on purpose. I have yet to meet anybody in the mortgage industry that grew up wanting to be a compliance officer at a bank. This is actually career number two for me. Originally, I was a musician in the Chicago music scene. I still play a little bit, but this is what you do with a degree in bass: is mortgage compliance. My dad was a real estate appraiser. My mom was an accountant, and this is sort of an amalgamation of what happens. Turns out during the subprime days, back in the stone age uh, now, 2005-2006, I was a processor, and you could be a musician on the road and still carry a pipeline as a processor back in those days. Well when I had kids and I moved into a house and it's a lot easier not to be on the road every weekend, all of a sudden mortgage is something that everybody else still kind of did. So I was playing with with a heavy metal band all the way through college playing in bars on the weekends, and the guitar player got us all taking loan applications for this little shop up in Elgin. I hate it, I quit, this sucks, this is hard. I still needed to eat, so I stuck with him. Before I knew it, I I had an overnight shift running the team uh, out there, and I've been doing this ever since. I was an underwriter, I was a processor, I was a loan officer, although not a very good one. And then uh, mortgage compliance started becoming a thing for the little mom and pop shops. Banks have always had them, but independent mortgage companies didn't really have a compliance guy until Dodd-Frank came around in 2011. The company I was working for at the time kind of pointed me and said, you're the you're the dude now. And I've been sticking with it ever since. So I fell into it by accident. The good news is that actually happens for a lot of people who do my same role at all the other uh, shops that are similarly situated.
1: It's kind of good that you had to play in front of some tough audiences because now you have to do some things in front of another tough audience, right?
2: Well, And the nice thing is too, what I would say to anybody who's listening, who's hiring, Musicians are actually really good for mortgage banking and banking in general because it's a lot of pattern recognition, acting under short circumstances, recognition of patterns, and memorization is really important. And you're dealing with clients if you're doing a wedding. Uh, under That is the most important day of their life. And when somebody's buying a house, that's the most important day of their life too. So there's a lot more parallels to it than you would think.
1: Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, but that's really good to think about because we always think that to be a great closer... We kind of equate it to being a good waitress or server or busser or restaurant owner because we're so used to serving and making sure people are happy.
2: Yeah, sure, absolutely.
1: Let's talk about some of the things that we usually don't like to talk about today. The first one is, you know, let's talk about remote online notarization from a lender's perspective because through the pandemic, ron was all the buzz and everybody was tuning into the technology but now that the market is shifting where's ron right now and how do you have these discussions as a lender both internally and externally
2: you know linda that's a really good question regarding how ron is looking right now so lenders in general and i'm not speaking on behalf of neighborhood or the illinois mortgage bankers association here so i'm just speaking from my own personal thoughts lenders tend to be very tactical. We make quick decisions. We make big decisions. We move very quickly. We're not always very strategic. So when it comes time to long-term thinking, we spend so much time reacting to what's going on right now in front of us because that's the space in which we live in, which is what does the customer need right now? But when it comes time for long-term thinking, a lot of lenders don't think of it in that same level of depth that, that, that they maybe should. So. To your point regarding Ron, yeah, absolutely. Back when COVID lockdowns were going on and there was a lot of shelter in place, there was a lot of questions about how Ron was gonna play out uh, remote online notarization. Wouldn't this be great if we could do this via Zoom? Wouldn't this be great if we could do this online? And now that everything has started to open up, not to say that COVID is over, people have kind of forgotten about it. It hit the snooze bar a little bit. The other thing that is hard to think about sometimes is from a lender's perspective, we can't just say, Ron sounds great, flip the switch and it's done. There's a lot of vendors and there's a lot of moving pieces. There's investors that have to say, yes, I've got these warehouse lines. Lenders don't often have their own money. They borrow it from something called a warehouse line that also has to prove the use of Ron. When I sell these loans to Fannie and Freddie, I have to be approved to use Ron. And not every county in every state that we deal with accepts a Ron notarization and not every product accepts it. So now instead of just saying, Ron, yes or no, we like it or we don't, we have this sort of maze where we have to thread the needle between all these different situations. And at the end of it, we also have to say, does this borrower even want it? Well, now that things have opened up again and people like meeting in person, the use and the, the request for Ron has come down quite a bit. At the same time, as you mentioned, volume has come down quite a bit too initiatives like rolling out remote online notarization take a lot of cash. It takes a lot of capital to sign this all up. And when a lot of lenders look at volume coming down, they're not also going to spring for a lot of money to sign up new initiatives because they're also trying to keep their powder dry for what we see happen in the market. It's a good idea. And I think the security on it is really strong. I think Ron is a great idea. And I do think eventually that's going to be where the entire industry moves. I think a lot of lenders, especially the smaller players, are hitting pause for now just because of the difficulties that I listed and the cost that's involved in it, and for how much do a client really want this versus not.
1: I think that's a big consideration because there are a lot of people, and I mean a lot, like 85%, that still want to have that face-to-face at the closing table. They do really realize that this is an investment. You know, they want to kind of see the culmination of all that work in the front end and in the middle and, and the approval and now finally getting those keys. I also liked how you were very honest about lenders being more tactical than strategic. We talk about strategy all the time in our industry, but it's amazing how so many of us, and I don't mean just lenders, I mean all the pieces in this pie, kind of always follow that bright, shiny object. Like, what is really cool right now? What can we glam on to? What can we capitalize on? Because it's just cool stuff.
2: We roll our eyes on that a lot. And the the idea of chasing the bright, shiny object happens more often than I would like to admit. One of the things that we see is there'll be, um, the watchword for the day is the buy-down product. Everybody's talking about buy-downs as interest rates have gone up buy-downs are the new hot topic and everybody's talking about it, advertising buy-downs, asking questions about buy-downs. And everybody who's been in the industry for a while said, didn't we just do this like six years ago? Buy-downs were the thing like back in like 2016. And then they were the thing in 2010 and then they were the thing in 2004. So I'm looking now going, okay, in 2028, I'll see buy-downs again. That'll be the next topic. We have certain cycles where we look at it and go, This is going to be the next shiny object that we all decide to chase all at the same time. A lot of lenders, and especially people who do my job in compliance, we talk to each other all the time. What happens then is we tend to bounce ideas off of each other. And before you know it, every lender is not moving in lockstep, but we're looking at a lot of the same solutions at the same time. So two years ago, it was Ron. Ron's all we ever want to do. The problem you're running into that is that if everybody's chasing the same shiny object, if you're a RON provider, or if you're an investor who offers buy-down mortgages, all of a sudden your door is getting crowded on this very one specific thing. And now there's a bottleneck when every lender wants the same thing at the same time. So there's a limited amount of success, I think, in that approach, which is why chasing shiny objects, we try to be a lot more strategic, but it doesn't always happen.
1: Well, and you also mentioned about initiatives costing a lot of money. It also takes a lot of time. Tell me about on the lender side from your lender's perspective, don't you have to have all these other organizations, all these other processes in place before you could really move into other initiatives as well?
2: So one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at is the cost to originate a loan. And I don't think a lot of people realize how much it actually costs to originate a mortgage. There's this perspective that lenders are just printing money all day long and I get to Scrooge McDucket when I go home into my big gold vault. Well, I can make compliance guy money, so that doesn't happen. But when people realize that when 2020 and 2021 were a bit of an aberration, they were very record volume years, so income was very good. But that's not normal. The actual cost to originate a loan goes up every single year, and it's about $10,000 depending on the lender. You've got to pay for your processor. You've got to pay for your origination system. You've got to pay for your underwriter. But then there's, to your point, Linda, all of the vendors that we deal with too. You've got an appraiser and a credit report company. You've got a closer, the title company, who's going to go out and close this loan. We've also got all the technology that goes into Automated underwriting systems warehouse lines all these systems need to come together One of the facts that we like to kind of point out is that the average mortgage application today Has about 14,000 data points and if one of them is wrong We give away all the profit on that loan. We make nothing The average loan profit per unit is about six to seven hundred dollars. It's not printing money like people think it is related to that If you have one loan that goes bad and you suddenly have to buy back a $400,000 loan, but your average profit is only 750 bucks, you can see that as a result of lenders becoming more conservative and worried more about automation and best execution. Because the vendors that are involved in those transactions need to get paid in either way. And the CFPB has stated that if one of my vendors does something that is wrong, I'm responsible for their actions. So we have to spend a lot of time vetting The hundreds of vendors that we have to use on a day-to-day basis to make sure that they're doing our customers right and that they're not doing something that I'm going to be embarrassed about later on.
1: So that's interesting, number one, about the cost. I don't think the consumer understands or realizes the amount because they think that they're paying for all the costs, you know, whether they're paying for a point or anything within the transaction, Also, the data points, and I know there's organizations out there that are trying to reduce those data points as well, but now that this market is slowing, how have the mortgage application percentages changed? Because I would think that during a certain amount of time that the percentage of applications that went in versus the amount of applications that went to closing was a pretty high amount, Uh, now it's starting to go down. I've heard that mortgage applications are not approved as quickly. Is that true? How's it affecting you?
2: So a lot of that depends on the institution, right? Every shop is a little bit different, but I would say that's definitely the case. The biggest change that we've really seen over the last two years, especially in 2022, is the ratio of purchases to refinances. I mean, that's certainly the largest one we've seen. So Go back a couple years, the refinance to purchase is about 60-40, you know, 60% refinances with about 40% purchases. Now the difference is about 7% refinances with 93% purchases. So a lot of the companies that were doing heavily into refinance were making a ton of money during 2020 and 2021. It's true. But now their volume is down 90% because all they did was refis and they never did any purchases. You are also starting to see... I think the amount of loans that get approved is about the same, but the amount of loans that don't make it to closing, even though they were an application has gone down quite a bit. A lot of that has to do with trying to get the deal to the table. As interest rates go up, affordability goes down. We are starting to see some of those interest rates squeeze out buyers that otherwise would be eligible for a loan that can't qualify for no other reason that they can no longer afford the payment from when they started the application to when they locked the loan. And that's not an overwhelming number of applications that are coming in, but it's enough that it's notable and it is squeezing out some of the borrowers who are unfortunately in the worst situation where they really should be able to buy a house under normal circumstances, but now they can't. And that's tough to watch.
1: So you talked about the the percentages of loans and how they're changing, the type of loan. So Tell me about these inventory shortages. I mean, we all know about them, but how are you as a lender kind of adjusting for that?
2: Sure. So what you're gonna see, and this goes into one of those lockstep where we chase the shiny objects, what you're gonna see now is lenders are gonna adjust this in a couple of different ways. Okay. One of them is gonna be based on products. If you've got a, a lot of lenders now are coming out with bridge loans where You can borrow against your house before you sell it. And then when you sell the loan, it's a short finance. So then you can pay off the bridge as soon as your old house sells. And it helps kind of bridge that gap in between. Inventory is a real problem with houses that are available for the market. So renovation financing, construction loans, 203k is a really common FHA renovation product that allows borrowers to take the work that the house needs in order to be financeable and put on the roof, fix the attic, put in new windows, get the floors done, repaint, so that when they move in, it's ready to go. That takes a house that was off the market and puts it back into the market for the average buyer. The other thing that is happening with inventory that is interesting to me, at least, when when we talk about how lenders adjust, interesting data point is 2022 is the biggest percentage of loan officers leaving and going to new companies. So you are starting to see people who have an established book of business It's getting to be a bit of a silly season in 2022 In 2020 and 2021, no loan officers wanted to move anywhere because I'd like to talk to you later. I can't talk to you right now, Mr. Recruiter because I'm so busy closing a record number of volume. Well, now that things have started to slow down, a lot of those loan officers are starting to make adjustments. So now as we see the seasonal slowdown happen, a lot of these loan officers that have established books of business, good referral networks, and have conducted themselves professionally for years are starting to make different choices about where they work. So we're seeing a larger number of loan officers move now than we have at any point in the last two years. If the average number of units closed per loan officer is going down, and I wanna keep my volume flat, lenders will recruit more loan officers so that the number of people you need in closing, post-closing, compliance, quality control can remain the same. The company closes the same number of units every month. But each loan officer is producing less units. Therefore, I need more loan officers. So that's why you're seeing a lot of transitions going on right now.
1: Nathan, let's talk about CRAs or the Community Reinvestment Act. Is that something that's federal? Is it across all states? Tell me a little bit about CRA.
2: Sure. So in, it, Linda, this is a deep topic. We could talk for hours on this. So, I'll try to keep everything kind of high level. Community Reinvestment Act is originally something that applied to banks and it was incredibly well-intentioned. It is something that banks have been doing for decades. They're very used to this. And the idea of CRA is pretty simple. If I've got a bank set in this town or this region or this market, I'm taking in deposits from this market. So everybody's got their checking and savings with me and I'm taking that deposit. I should also be reinvesting, making loans into that same market. So federal regulators have seen for years that if I'm taking in deposits from this market, I should also be lending back into that same community from taking deposits. And it really comes down to fair banking, fair lending, fair deposit act. Are we doing everything that we should be to prevent disparate impact or treating whole communities unfairly? If you think about it, neighborhoods, communities, live and die based on the adequate flow of capital. Do we have enough money flowing into this neighborhood? And if the answer is no, that's a problem. So CRA has been something that banks are used to for a long time. The recent concern with this is that most mortgage lending isn't done by banks anymore. Increasingly, independent mortgage bankers, and I could name names, but anybody who's not a federally chartered bank, increasingly is not only doing more lending, doing a bigger percentage of the mortgage lending. But we're also lending into a lot of the communities that the banks don't traditionally go into. So some regulators, and this is not federal just right now, this is actually just on the state level. New York, Massachusetts, and Illinois all have state CRAs that overlay with federal CRA. And here's the piece that's interesting, is that CRA in those states, New York, Massachusetts, and Illinois, applies not only to banks, but to non-banks. Now, the point in general is to prevent things like redlining, where whole neighborhoods were excluded from the ability to get funds. It's not a perfect fit, so there's a lot of confusion that's still tied around in that as an independent mortgage banker, we don't take deposits, you don't have checking and savings, so the half of the equation about if you're taking in deposits or customers from this market, are you lending back into them, is a little bit of an ill fit. I think it's incredibly well-intentioned. Fair lending is a massive concern that needs to improve. And the mortgage industry in general, especially if you go back from 2005 to present, I'm going to be honest, has a lot to answer for. We need to be doing better. So I think the idea of state-specific CRA is very well-intentioned. I'm behind the idea of it. There is some question among the, the lending community about how to implement it effectively and how to get these rules to apply to us. What I will tell you, uh, speaking to like the state of Illinois who passed this legislation, often what they've said on their presentations to mortgage bankers is to really look at Massachusetts and a lot of the guidance that they got was directly from Massachusetts. So Massachusetts has been doing this kind of first. They were one of the first states to really have this, especially for the independent mortgage bankers. So a lot of people are following that playbook to be successful. And I I do see this, there's been some scuttlebutt about making this a federal thing uh, through either the CFPB. California is mulling over a very similar idea and where California goes, the nation tends to go as well. Uh, Again, California is like the fifth largest economy in the world and they are one of the biggest housing markets in the US. So if California passes a similar CRA, I could see something like this happening federally. From our perspective, I mean, going back to the lender, you can't go back and just say, this needs to be better just because the state told me so. What I will say just kind of anecdotally is that if this isn't who you are, where you're trying to be all things to all people and lend in every neighborhood in your market, a law is not gonna change that. So we spend a lot of time looking to see what our competition does and to see where they're lending and we compare it to ours. It's called a footprint. Here's a map of Chicago where are we lending? If there's a hole, we need to make sure that we're lending more in those areas. At the thrust of it, that is what CRA is intended for. There's some questions on how that's gonna look on the regulation side. So it's a very important topic. Fair lending needs to be something that happens. And I do think CRA is very well intentioned. So we're a fan of it. It's a question of how to do it the right way.
1: Well, Nathan, speaking of affordable housing, let's talk about affordable lending. Explain QM and how these new QM rules are freezing out affordable lending.
2: So This is uh, the current hot topic, and I'll try to give a summary of qualified mortgages. So back in 2014, back in the good old days, qualified mortgages are not designed to protect borrowers. They are designed to protect lenders. So if we go back to subprime, back in the bad old days, 2005, 2006 investors stopped buying loans from lenders because people were going to the courts and saying, this lender put me into a house that I can't afford and they would get a free house out of it. So nobody wanted to buy from a lender, buy loans from a lender because I don't want to give away a house after I spent all this money investing in the mortgage that I thought was going to pay me back. So the QM rules, qualified mortgage rules, qualified mortgages are a box. And as long as I, as a lender, make a loan that fits inside this box, I have something called safe harbor. Safe harbor means I guarantee this borrower can't come back to me and say, you didn't tell me you couldn't afford it. And it was designed to put down the worst of what was going on during subprime. So that's good, all of that is good things. It puts some guardrails around how lending is working and to prevent the worst impulses of mortgage business. So all good things. Here's the problem, is that it was designed during a normal lending environment. And we are not currently in one of those rates have gone up sometimes drastically. And a lot of the state what are called high cost laws are based around the percentage rate, the APR, the annual percentage rate, we never imagined that we would be back to 9% rates. So if you have an APR, that's 9%, you have suddenly hit qualified mortgage or high cost or state high cost levels. So now you have a borrower who's got a regular Fannie Freddie loan, 30 year fixed, nothing special, but I don't have a mortgage that I can give them because the state high cost laws will prevent me from doing so without going too far into the weeds, APRs on smaller loan amounts because my fees are fixed. It it costs the same for me to originate a $400,000 loan as it does a $100,000 loan. Right? So my fees are fixed which means my APR is higher on that lower loan amount, which means that these high cost programs and qualified mortgage programs require me to deny loans that I would otherwise be able to make for somebody who's got a larger loan amount. Anytime we look at uh, an impact on the market related to inventory shortages or rates going up, disproportionately this tends to impact borrowers who are at the lower end of the market. And that is something that is difficult to control. We don't have a lot of options on how to come through for this. And that's one of the things that really is heart wrenching to watch, is people who could always get a loan can always get a loan. But those of you who are trying to get into a loan for the very first time and start that dream of home ownership, get frozen out at a higher rate than those who are much more well-to-do. Now, on the plus side, what we are seeing is kind of a rise of down payment assistance. You
1: mentioned that uh, we're not in a normal environment. I mean, are we ever going to be in a normal environment? Normal environment seems so far in the rearview mirror right
2: now. Well, and what is normal? Because we go from crisis to jour. So if we didn't have a crisis, we'd have to make one up. (laughs) So I'm not an economist. I'm just the compliance guy, so I don't check rates all that often. What I'm seeing from the people who are smarter than me related to rates is that rates will eventually normalize. And it's important to also remember that a lot of this is based on not just our rates high or our rates low, but our rates increasing or decreasing and how fast is that occurring? So it's not just a problem of our rates higher than they were two years ago. Well, yeah, the problem that we're running into specifically is our rates increasing fast enough that we can't get a, a normalized market. So even if rates are higher than they have been over the last two years, are the rates at least even month over month so we can start making plans based on it? And I think that's the piece they are waiting for. I do think that eventually, yes, that is going to happen, probably in early 2023, but I'm going to, again, I'm not an economist, so a lot of that is going to be a guess.
1: That's all right. I don't have a good crystal ball either. Mine always seems to be giving me the wrong answers. I get better answers from that magic eight ball when I shake that thing yeah. up.
2: I should shake that more often. The other thing to to kind of keep in mind too is when every time we talk about rates, when you talk about what a lender kind of thinks about on a day-to-day basis, high interest rates are kind of like speeding and car accidents to use a kind of strange analogy. So rates being high is a problem, but it's not the primary problem. So say if somebody was drunk driving and speeding, that's worse. Or if they were texting on their phone and speeding, the texting while you're driving is the problem. The speeding just makes that problem worse. A lot of the things that lenders think about right now is all the things that are piled up over here. Those are my problems. The rates don't help. The fact that rates are higher makes it harder. You can also kind of see that a little bit with some of, the, some of the friction that you've seen in the lending space and some of the mergers and acquisitions that are going on, some of the branches that are closing down. We're relying on the fact that rates were really low to cover up some stuff that was maybe not as well efficient as it should have been over the last two years. But times are good, so we can kind of look the other way. It's like when you're texting and driving and you don't get caught, to keep the analogy kind of going a little bit. We are starting to see some of the slowdown related to interest rates affect lenders that maybe were not as efficient. And I will tell you that every lender that I'm talking to right now is spending a lot of time looking at efficiency, reducing that cost to originate, again, about $10,000. How can we make that number smaller? And looking to, in some cases, there have been, it's fairly well publicized. The lending community has had a lot of layoffs over the course of the last couple of months. From a financial services perspective, mortgage lending is a little strange compared to tax advisement or investments or personal banking or being a teller those skills are recognized as being kind of transferable and the thing that i would say and i'm saying this mostly as the compliance guy so take it all with a grain of salt one of the things that we see whenever people are put under pressure is they make poor decisions that in retrospect were probably not awesome meaning times are really bad let's cut corners let's maybe not do the thing that we thought we should do What are the odds we're gonna get caught? What I will tell you is that a lot of the states right now are setting up miniature CFPBs. And this started probably about four years ago when we started looking at state regulators starting to get a lot more teeth to them. And people started making decisions, regulations maybe not so strong, times are really good, we're really busy. Nobody's looking that much. Well, now it's coming home to roost. So think about how you're conducting yourself on a day-to-day basis, that if I had to go home and explain it to my kids, could I still do so and look them in the eye? And I think the people who are gonna be successful right now are very efficient, and the people that are successful right now have high integrity. And this is gonna be a a season over the course of the next couple of months that drums out those from the industry that frankly shouldn't be here. And that's not only true in the lending community, but I think that's also gonna be true in the vendor community a lot of the title agents who have made decisions that were maybe not sustainable are starting to realize that they need to go a different direction. And I don't see all of that necessarily as a bad thing. Just my own take, that's not the view of anybody else that I represent, but that's kind of my pie in the sky on it.
1: Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today at FNF Unplugged. What I really got out of, especially that last comment that you made was, watch what we do, how we do it, and keep those relationships that will endure.
2: Absolutely, very well stated, Linda. I just wanna say thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure and I very much appreciate the opportunity.
1: We are going to have you back because there was like four other things that I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm gonna leave them till maybe January. How about that?
2: Sounds like a plan.
0: All right, thank you, Nathan. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.